0: Wow You know it's a funny story real quick. This week we had the pianos tuned in here, and I plan on saying this, so if I jumble over myself, it's, it's kind of funny. Um, I had the piano tuner come in, and he tuned both the pianos this week, and he said, "I'm going to come back a day later, retune them again." And I'm sitting in my office, and he came in, and he, we're starting to walk this way, and we can hear the pianos being played. And if anybody knows this guy, he's, he's a very reserved, quiet guy, and he starts freaking out. He goes, oh, no, who's playing the pianos? I haven't finished tuning them yet. They, they, they can't be doing this. They're banging on the pianos. And I was like, oh, it's Nellie and Fran. He goes, oh, that's fine. They're phenomenal. <laughs> <laughs> and then he walked in, said hello, and he's coming back Monday now. So just so you know, Paul Furbutt, piano tuner, loves our piano players. I I don't quite know why I'm actually going to be preaching right now because uh, it's not too often do I get to sit on that side of the microphone and be a part of the congregation for singing. And there's nothing more encouraging than today what we just did. And we sang the gospel. And if we said that the gospel wasn't present in the words that we just sang, we'd be completely lying. One of the lines that completely just crushed me today was, By his righteous steps I have hope again. Emmanuel. Emmanuel. And that is a nutshell of my passage, so uh, Pastor Chris, thanks for preaching, let's pray and we're going to go home. (laughs) Just kidding. But good morning anyways, my name is Nathan Harris and I am on staff here at Old North Church and it is an incredible honor and privilege to be opening up God's word with you today and seeking God to continue shaping and reforming our hearts and minds through his word. And for the past couple of weeks, we've been making announcements about our new Christmas series that's coming up. You see, this year we're going to do something a little bit different than normal. And Pastor Al kind of already alluded to what we're doing. But Christmas is, is usually focused on the birth of Christ. It's focused on the nativity, on the three kings, on shepherds, on Mary, on Joseph, even Elizabeth and Zechariah and Jesus' cousin, John the Baptist. We've seen so many passages preached at Christmas. There's so many things that typically get, typically get focused on during the Advent season that we want to show another side the Christmas story. Christmas, the celebration of Christ's birth, should not have been a surprise. It wasn't a random event that took place, but in reality was foretold hundreds of years prior by prophets in the Old Testament. Now before we get started, let's pray. Let's ask God that he illuminates our hearts and our minds to his word today. Would you pray with me? Father, we come to you today as eager children, excited to hear your word. I pray that as we open your word and begin to study, you allow us to understand your word deeply into our hearts and into our minds so that we can better know you in your mighty and gracious works. As we continue in this Advent season, I, uh, we can't help but recognize the importance of what we are celebrating, and that is the birth of your son, Jesus Christ, who came in the form of a child, gave us hope we can't compare anything to, a faith that we can hold firm only by your sovereign hand, and a glimpse into the future to come. Father, we love you we praise you. In Jesus' name, amen. Christmas is one of my favorite times of the year. If anybody knows me, you know this. I'm a pretty jolly guy. And I'm not quite sure what it is about Christmas that I thoroughly love, whether it's all the family traditions or all the different things that start going on. It's just the time of the year, I really love it. And if I had my way, I would have a Christmas tree up all year round, and it would be decorated for all the different seasons. Do you hear that, honey? Christmas tree all year round. If you walked into my office right now, you'd probably still hear my Frank Sinatra record spinning in my record player because I forgot to shut it off, and usually when it stops playing, I'll just flip it over and start another side of it. I absolutely love Christmas, even to the point that my family uh, kind of reminds me of the Griswolds from Christmas Vacation. If anybody knows this movie, you've you've seen Clark Griswold. My dad is, is Clark Griswold. When I was younger, he would do everything possible to get Christmas lights up around the house. He'd be outside in snow, climbing ladders. Ice would be all over the place. My mom would be yelling at him, and he'd be out in the front yard going, Joy to the world! And the lights would go. If you've ever seen the scene in Christmas Vacation where they go to cut the turkey, and it's so dry that it pops open and just steam comes out of it, then you've had some of my family's cooking. <laughs> Don't worry, Mom, I'm not saying your name. I even have a crazy little grandma that if, if you were to ask her to say grace over the meal, she would start to recite the Pledge of Allegiance. This is my family, and Christmas is always an interesting time for us. But every year, Christmas seems to be coming closer and closer and sooner and sooner in the year. And it's not that time is going by faster. Each passing year, the time to start decorating, the time to start prepping, and the time to start celebrating Christmas is just moving up. It's moving up, and it's moving up. If you don't believe me, then go to Walmart, or Target, or Kmart, or any other department store around October... And you're going to start seeing Christmas decorations. This year, at the end of September, I actually started seeing small sections of some of these stores putting out their Christmas decorations. If you still don't believe me, turn on any TV channel like Lifetime or Hallmark or anything that makes you want to grab a tissue and start crying. You're going to start seeing Christmas movies being played in October, November, into December. And it's not even just consumerism that does. And even nature starts to give us signs of the coming of Christmas. Our weather starts to change. Our temperatures start to drop. And even snow. Yes, snowflakes begin to fall. I even saw over this past summer how an online store and a radio station decided to celebrate Christmas for one day in July. I look back at my childhood and I remember the anticipation when the signs of Christmas started to show. I would get so excited because you'd know snow was coming. So what does snow mean for kids? It means snow days. It was exciting. Hot chocolate. All these good foods that my, that my parents and family would start to make. You, you think of presents. Yes, I couldn't wait for presents. I was incredibly selfish. I just loved any reason to celebrate. I loved every reason to be able to gather as our family, to be able to sit around and just get everybody together that doesn't typically get together during the year. All the marketing teams, all the department stores, all the radio stations, all the television channels, and even all the weather begins to show signs that Christmas is coming. We know that Christmas is coming because it's made known to us by the signs around us. We see the signs of Christmas, so therefore we know Christmas is coming. The prophets in the Old Testament gave us signs to look for, for the coming of Christ, yet it was still a surprise to the Jews during Jesus' time. These signs weren't commercials. They weren't feel-good songs that make you want to dance. They were were specific. They were unusual signs. Most importantly, they were to give God's people a glimpse of redemptive hope. Let's take a look at one of those signs of Christmas together. Open up your Bibles to the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 1, verses 18 through 25. In your pew Bible, that's page 807. And now, everybody listen to me. If you've, if you've come here and you do not have a Bible to call your own, if you don't have a Bible at home, take the black Bible that's in front of you or underneath you, depending on where you're sitting, and take it home with you. Next week, there'll be another Bible in that spot. That is our gift to you. We want you to have a Bible. Page 807. Matthew 1, 18 through 25. If you were raised in church or if you've ever been to church on Christmas, this is probably one of the passages that's been read the most. We've heard this passage so many times that we read over it and we don't catch some of the deep truths in it. We hear it as a story and we leave it at that. We hear this story and stop. But let me tell you, for people who don't regularly go to church or have never really heard this part of the Christmas story, This has to be the weirdest-sounding plot you can ever imagine. A young virgin girl gets pregnant by the Holy Spirit, the husband accepts it, and they live happily ever after. That just sounds absurd. Even to some Christians, they doubt that this really even happened. Now, I want to stop and say, as a church, we do believe in what's called the inerrancy and infallibility of Scripture. Inerrancy means that Scripture is without error— Infallibility means it is unable to have error. That means Scripture is true, and it will always be true. Scripture is true, and it is unchanging. Nothing will stop that. So we have to look at this story not just as a narrative, but as deep theological truths that we can embed into our lives as followers of Christ and children of God. That being said, looking at the Christmas story, Why did it have to happen this way? Couldn't God have made an easier way for Jesus to enter in the world than through trial and doubt? I mean, look at Joseph and Mary. Look what they went through. Read through the Gospel of Luke and see Mary's story, accepting what God had placed before her. She had no idea what was going on, but she willingly stepped into that role. And Joseph, I I can't imagine Joseph's response if it was me. Scripture tells us that Joseph and Mary were betrothed, which means they were engaged to be married. Marriage in the Hebrew culture had two steps. There was the betrothal, or the engagement, and the consummation, which was the marriage. When two people became betrothed, they were close enough to being married that if they wanted to split, there had to be a divorce. At the betrothal, before they were even technically married, if they were going to split, a divorce would have to happen. When Kelsey and I got engaged in September, I, I asked her, I said, do you know what it means to be betrothed? And she said, no. So I began to explain to her, I said, darling, now that we are engaged, we have what's called a betrothal. We, we are engaged to be married so that no matter what happens, this can't be done. This cannot be undone. We're together forever. She sat there for a second and she looked up at me and she said, so does that mean I'm stuck? And I laughed, and then I got really worried, and uh, we moved on from it. And not have, we have not brought it up since. But I cannot imagine Joseph's response, looking at myself as a man who's betrothed to be married. Joseph is a much better man than I. You see, Kelsey and I, we look at our, our engagement as is we understand that we're going to love each other through all of life's situations. We're constantly in prayer for each other as we spur each other on. This is what makes it much more difficult for us to look at Joseph and see his response to Mary. Mary tells Joseph, I'm pregnant by somebody else. Scripture tells us that Joseph was a good man and he decided to keep quiet and divorce Mary to not make a spectacle out of the situation. Joseph, much better man than I, News like this would not have been taken very well from me. I would have been mortified from it, and and especially working in the church. uh, If this would have happened, I would have wanted to make sure everybody knew that this was not me. I would be, hi, how are you, how are you, I didn't do it. Hi, how are you, how are you, how are you, wasn't me, wasn't me, it was somebody else. She's gone crazy, saying it's the Holy Spirit, wasn't me. I'd have signs everywhere saying, it wasn't me, I didn't do this, somebody else, it's going to be done. That's not what scripture, scripture says. this isn't what happened, Joseph stayed quiet and after a dream and speaking with an angel, he decided to continue that engagement. He married Mary. Did anyone catch the reason why all of this happened? Did anyone see the verse or the couple of verses that give an explanation on why this happened? Two key verses. Verse 22 and verse 23. All This took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. All. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son. They shall call his name Emmanuel. This odd Christmas story seems to be completely wrapped up in what had been prophesied long before. But what was being fulfilled? Why did God give such a sign for Christmas in this way? Why was it this way? Well, let's take a look at where this passage comes from in Isaiah chapter 7. Feel free to turn to Isaiah chapter 7. That is on page 571 of your pew Bible. And while you're flipping there, let me give you a little bit of a background on the book of Isaiah and the situation that's going on. This passage that we're about to read took place about 700 years before the birth of Christ. And it's speaking about Ahaz. Ahaz was one of the most wicked kings in the line of David ever to rule Judah. In chapter 16 of Second Kings, we are told that Ahaz did not do what was right in the eyes of the Lord. He followed the ways of nations who occupied Palestine before the children of Israel came to the land. He offered sacrifices and burned incense in high places. He even sacrificed his son by fire. Ahaz was an unfaithful, disobedient king, to say the least. David's kingdom had long split into two. Israel was the northern kingdom, which typically stayed unfaithful to God, whereas the southern kingdom, Judah, went back and forth. They ping-ponged with their kings, either being faithful or either being unfaithful to God. The setting for this encounter that we read between Isaiah and the prophet, and Ahaz the king is due to a resurgent country named Assyria. Assyria had begun to push south and go into Palestine and the kings of Israel and the king of Syria formed an anti-Assyrian pact and were determined to force Judah, King Ahaz, to join them by removing him from the throne and putting somebody in that they could puppeteer. Israel in Syria, wanted to place their own king in Judah so they could form an alliance against Assyria. Ahaz is in an incredibly tough situation. He is stricken by fear. He is faced with two giant problems. Either he's going to be invaded by Syria and Israel, and he's going to be abdicated from his throne. His throne's going to be taken from him, or even worse, he'll probably lose his life. Or the second of the worst situations, he's going to be forced to join them And have to fight the mighty Assyria, which is not going to fare well for any of them. As we come to the encounter with Isaiah and Ahaz, it's evident that Ahaz has already made a decision on what he's going to be doing with his country. He's going to surrender to Assyria. He's going to give up his country. He's going to start worshiping false gods. He's going to give up his culture. He's going to give up everything to find some type of security in Assyria. Judah's going to be taken over in hopes to save their life from an inevitable war. For Judah to partner with Assyria is an incredibly serious consideration. It's partnering with the biggest of enemies that you can imagine in order to try and save yourself. That's like Ohio State football partnering with Michigan football to save themselves. No, that's not it. Michigan's nowhere near good enough to be considered Assyria. That is like Michigan football partnering with the mighty Ohio State to take them over, to take over their program, to disband as a team, to find some kind of false security. We see in Scripture that Ahaz was so fearful of what was about to happen that it compares him and his nation to that of trees shaking in the forest by the wind. A little bit of wind shakes a tree, so the threat of war makes Ahaz and Judah tremble. Verses 1 through 9 shows how Ahaz, amidst a fearful situation, tries to place his trust in everything but the Lord. Three times in this text we see Scripture speak to Ahaz in a manner to trust the Lord. And with each attempt, he rejects the notion and remains paralyzed in fear. Let's begin reading. In the days of Ahaz, the son of Jotham, son of Uzziah, king of Judah, Rezin the king of Syria, and Pekah, the son of Remaliah, the king of Israel came up to Jerusalem to wage war against it, but could not yet mount an attack against it. When the house of David was told, Syria is in league with Ephraim, the heart of Ahaz and the heart of his people shook as the trees of the forest shake before the wind. And the Lord said to Isaiah, Go out to meet Ahaz, you and Shearjashob, your son, at the end of the conduit of the upper pool, on the highway to the washer's field, and say to him, Be careful, be quiet, do not fear, and do not let your heart be faint because of these two smoldering stumps of firebrands, at the fierce anger of Rezin and Syria, and the son of Remaliah, Because Syria with Ephraim and the son of Remaliah has devised evil against you, saying, Let us go up against Judah and terrify it, and let us conquer it for ourselves. And set up the son of Tabeel as the king in the midst of it. Thus says the Lord God. It shall not stand and it shall not come to pass. For the head of Syria is Damascus. And the head of Damascus is Rezin. And within 65 years Ephraim will be shattered from being a people. And the head of Ephraim is Samaria. And the head of Samaria is the son of Remaliah. If you are not firm in faith. You will not be firm at all. Have you ever been in an intensely dark room, sleeping underneath your blankets, completely calm, nothing bothering you, and then boom, someone turns the lights on. Does that ever happen? I absolutely hate when that happens. When you're in a dark room and your eyes are adjusted to the dark, and then somebody turns on all of the lights, what's your first reaction First reaction is to close your eyes as tight as you can. You're you're pulling your blanket up over your head. You're, You're refusing to let that light shining in your face show you anything. Light is good. It allows you to see the things around you. It allows you to move. Isaiah is trying to shine light on Ahaz. And Ahaz continues to pull the blankets over his face. And he is clenching his eyes shut as hard as he can and refusing to let that light before him. This message that was given to the king of Judah was of encouragement. Isaiah tells him, don't be afraid. Stay calm. Your enemies are that of smoldering stumps of wood. And to even go on to say in verse 7, Ahaz's fears won't even happen. It shall not stand and it shall not come to pass, says the Lord. His enemies are compared to burnt out fire. Nothing of danger, but smoky stumps of wood that won't even harm you. God is telling Ahaz through the prophet Isaiah that the situation is not as bad as you think. You are letting your fear take over. You are trying to trust in something untrustworthy. And the threat of war isn't even going to happen if you trust in me you trust in me god continues to tell us in scripture that if you're not firm in faith you won't be firm at all john wesley a famous theologian used to say the line that if a man doesn't believe in god he will believe in anything i me say that again john wesley if a man doesn't believe in god he will believe in anything it's a different wording but it's the same theme we're seeing here in, in the book of isaiah If our trust is not in God, everything else we continue to try and grab onto will fail us. If our trust is not in God, everything we try to grab to will fail us. But Ahaz keeps his eyes closed, keeps his blanket over his head, and he refuses to allow the light to show him. He continues to trust in his own ability and ignores God. Ahaz lacks trust, therefore does not believe that God will provide for him. So God says, listen, if you don't trust me, how about I give you something to hold on to? How about a sign? How about some hope? Let's continue reading in verse 10. Again, the Lord spoke to Ahaz, ask a sign of the Lord your God. Let it be deep as Sheol or high as heaven. But Ahaz said, I will not ask and I will not put the Lord to the test. And he said, Hear then, O house of David, is it too little for you to weary men that you weary my God also? Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. He shall eat curds and honey when he knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good. The land whose two kings you dread will be deserted. The Lord will bring upon you and upon your people and upon your father's house such days as have not come since the day that Ephraim departed from Judah, the king of Assyria. So we saw in the first passage how his lack of trust in God led to fear for Ahaz. Now we see how his lack of hope proves his disobedience to God. Verse 10 starts with God giving Ahaz the ability to ask for a sign. Using the phrase deep as Sheol or high as heaven, God's telling him, go ahead and ask for whatever you want. Ask me for whatever sign you want, and I will give it to you to show you. Although it sounds like Ahaz is the one that's able to test God, Ahaz is the one that's being tested. Will Ahaz respond to the words by believing God, or will he instead, instead reject such belief? Ahaz decided to take the arrogant route, and he said he would not put the Lord to the test. He would not put the Lord to the test. He is blatantly denying not only his trust, but also his hope in God's saving ability. Not only is he denying trust, but also hope in God's saving ability. God gave him the moment to ask of any sign and he denied it. Ask any sign and you can have it. I'm not putting you to the test. Disobedience, no hope, no trust, only in himself. Have you ever denied the guidance from someone who clearly knows more about something than you? My list of examples in that a situation can go on and on and on. How many times that somebody's tried to give me advice and they know better, and uh, I decide to ignore it, and the consequences that you have to pay in those situations can be incredible. But as we see God's guidance rejected by Ahaz, we can't help but wonder what is this outcome going to be for Ahaz? He has no trust, he has no hope, he's denying God of a sign. What's his outcome? I am not an outdoors kind of guy. Do not like the outdoors. If you give me the option to choose something inside versus outside, I will take that every single time. Uh, I don't understand what the big deal with going out in the wilderness and walking around and picking up sticks and throwing rocks. I, I just don't get it. I, I'm, I'm, not, I'm not into that. Uh, when I lived in Virginia for a while, I decided I wanted to try and fit into the crowd and fit into the church that I was working at. So I decided to go hunting. And uh, first couple times I went hunting, I kept falling asleep underneath the tree, which I thought was great. I mean, it got a lot of rest, and uh, Virginia's beautiful. But the first time that I saw somebody get a deer, uh, I started to cry, and I was not asked to go back. <laughs> I, I wish I was kidding, but I'm really not. I did. That was, the, that was heartbreaking. But I'm not an outdoors guy. Rough and tough does not look good on me. I can't handle it, I don't want to do it, but there is one thing that I really do enjoy about once a year. I I will give up my idea of hating the wilderness, I'll give up my idea of stepping outside of air conditioning, and and I'll go hiking. I, I really like to go hiking. I'll get a couple of my closest friends, and we'll pack our backpack full of food, full of changes of clothes, tents, sleeping bags, and we'll take off for about four days. Uh, I've been to the Allegheny hiking, I've been to the Appalachian hiking, and it's probably one of the greatest times with a group of guys to just be in the middle of nowhere, no cell phone reception, and just get to know each other. And last year, uh, we went down to Roanoke, Virginia, and we hiked uh, plenty of miles across the Appalachian, and it was a blast. We got about 3,300 feet up, got to see over this rock, got to see over the entire city of Roanoke, and it was one of the most breathtaking situations, but the walk back down to the car was the worst thing I think we've ever experienced. We got back to the car, we were incredibly tired, we were hungry, and the only thing we could focus on was let's get to the closest place to get food, and unfortunately the closest place to get food was Waffle House, and we ate a ton of cheap, disgusting food and filled ourselves with it. We leave Waffle House, we drive to the gas station, and we're deciding to fill up for our trip home. I didn't make it out of the parking lot before I fell asleep. I was so exhausted. I didn't sleep for three or four days. Imagine sleeping on rocks with an uh, air mattress that only blows up about that big, but I was out. I was out cold. Nothing was waking me up. And when I say out, all of us in the car, except the guy driving, Slept. I slept so hard, actually. I, when I woke up and looked at my phone, three and a half hours had passed by. I slept in, in, in a little tiny car in the passenger seat for three and a half hours. And my first thought was, I am so excited right now because we're so much closer to home. We're, 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 we're going to be home. I'm going to be able to take a nice hot shower, cook a good meal. I'm going to be able to put my clothes back on to uh, normal and not this outdoor camo fatigue stuff. But I looked up. And I saw a sign. And I immediately felt my blood pressure rise. I immediately felt frustration hit my face. The sign said Washington, D.C., in a couple of miles. Yeah. <laughs> Your blood pressure rise too. I'm feeling mine rise again, just thinking about it. Now, if most of you don't know geography, Roanoke is on one side of Virginia. Washington, D.C. is on the other. We drove three and a half hours. Out of our way. I look to the driver, who shall remain nameless, because I didn't ask for his permission to use his name. Why are we almost in Washington DC? And his answer, funny now, <laughs> not funny then. Well, I hadn't been reading the signs. I know my way home. You know your way home through Washington, D.C., three and a half hours out of our way? And at this point, I had raised my voice and woken up the guys in the back seat, and I'm saying everything to the guy, and it wasn't very long before we, you know, dethroned him from our driver. The thought pattern was he knew enough to get by on his own, not needing signs to guide, not needing a sign to lead, and definitely not needing a sign to help. Give hope. I took over driving within three minutes of taking off and pulling onto the side of the road, and I turned my GPS on, and we were on our way home. Because the lack of acknowledging a sign... We weren't even close to being right. Now, I want to stop right there and and, and explain to you that I'm not telling you to go home today and start looking for signs in which the way God is speaking to you. I'm not saying that at all. Don't say you're going to go look at the rainbow or see the clouds, how they formed, and God's telling you this. Don't be crazy. That's, (laughs) That's not it. Because we actually have something better than signs today. We have something better and truer than signs. Second Peter tells us that all prophecy has been fully confirmed in Christ. What does that mean, church? Scripture is better than anything else we can encounter. Scripture is truer than anything we can encounter. If you want to know what God's will is for your life, find it in his word. Don't look for signs. Don't look all around. Look in his word. Ahaz was deliberately ignoring and rejecting the sign God was willing to give him. He was trusting in his own ability for hope. He was trusting in his own ability for security. And he was trusting in his own ability for some type of peace. Ahaz's trust was already in something else. Why did he need to place any hope in God? Though the sign was rejected, God still gave a disobedient and unfaithful king And country, a sign. The sign was that there would be one to come, born of a virgin, named Emmanuel. Before he is even old enough to know the differences between right and wrong, the kings and nations you fear, Ahaz, those kings you're so scared of, they'll be defeated, they'll be deserted. But something worse is coming because of your disobedience. It's the coming of Assyria, your greatest fear. You and your people are going to be captive to Assyria. Through his unwillingness to trust God's word, his inability to place his hope in God, God still showed his faithfulness to his people by giving them a sign of hope, a sign that they can trust, but it won't come for 700 years. And worse yet, Assyria is going to take over you. They're going to capture you. They're going to take captive your people. They're going to take your culture. They're going to change everything. But what does this tell us? What does this tell us about God? Though he poured judgment out on Judah, he still gave a sign of eventual hope? If God was going to redeem his people eventually, why not just do it now? Why make them wait? Why put them through everything if you're going to save them eventually? Why give them a hope that they can't even grasp onto right now? Because I think there is something that we can see that's much bigger to the story of God's redemption than the immediate. There's something bigger to the plan of God's redemption for his people than the here and the now. God's plan of redemption spans time. And is going to be always greater than the quick fix. God wants us to place trust and hope in him more than anything. And the sign of Emmanuel is that very thing. For Judah and for all of God's people, there would be a day they could place their trust and hope in something better than they could ever imagine. Better than they could have done on their own. It's something they could place their faith and be firm. It's Jesus. Let's take a look back at the passage in Matthew. So we know now more about this sign that was given, why God gave the sign of Christmas in the book of Isaiah. It was so that God's people could see a day where there would be hope for their disobedience, there would be forgiveness for their unwillingness to trust, and there would be redemption for their sins. What strikes me is the way that God decides to reveal this sign by giving two names, Emmanuel and Jesus. You see, in the Hebrew culture, names mean everything. Your name said not just who you were, but it said what you did. It gave you identity. It gave you personality. It gave you purpose. And it showed your calling. God revealed the sign in two names. We see throughout all of Scripture people being named something specific. And that's the title. For example, my name is Nathan. That means gift. Gift. And I take every opportunity to let people know what my name means when I'm speaking to you. Especially when I do something and Kelsey gives me that crazy look like I had just done something foolish. I look at her and say, you know, baby, I'm a gift. You better enjoy it. God revealed this sign with two names, Emmanuel and Jesus. We see scripture, Christ, the two names in this Christmas story. Emmanuel means God with us, and Jesus means one who saves people from their sins. The question that I asked at the very start of the sermon today was, why did the Christmas story happen this way? It happened so that God could fulfill every little thing. He gave us a sign. Not only would he ultimately give people his hope, not only would he give his people the ability to trust, but he would give them the very thing that they needed most, was himself. God gave us himself in Emmanuel. He made his presence among us. He he dwelt among us. He, He taught obedience to us. And by the name of Jesus, he saves us from our sins. Our hope, our trust, can be placed fully in God because he has given us the very thing that we can trust. Himself. The Gospel of Matthew is a joyful resound of the book of Isaiah. That the years of silence, the longing for hope, the anticipation of redemption had finally come. No longer did the people of God have to wait and look forward, but they were able to say, Rejoice, for the good news is here. Emmanuel has come. God is with us. Jesus lives, He saves us from our sins. That is the real Christmas story. That is something we can place our trust and our hope in. Emmanuel is here. Let's pray. Father, your word is true. Your faithfulness is incomparable. And I can't help but overcome with the idea that the very thing we run over in in the reading of the Christmas story is possibly one of the most important aspects about it. That not only was Jesus born, but he was born as a tangible hope for us. That the people we read about in the Bible, not only disobedient ones, they are not only the ones who trust in their own abilities, they are not the only ones who place hope in hopelessness, but it's for us, the entire world, you came to this earth. Emmanuel, God with us, thank you for your presence in us. Jesus, thank you for for saving us through redemption.